Uh, I'm not preaching tonight, but uh, the man who is is going to need this one. Um, Mike, come on up. Uh, this is my friend, uh, Mike Aitchison. Uh, Mike and his family live in Orlando. Did, did the family, they make it? They, they did. Where, where are you at? I want to in the back. Look at them back there. Yeah, way back there. All right. Uh, that's his family way back there. Uh, well, Mike, uh, Mike's from Miami. Uh, Mike went to UK. Uh, in fact, we overlap maybe a year uh, UK. He's a couple years younger than me. I just didn't know it. Um, but Mike uh, is a church planner uh, in our denomination in Orlando. Uh, now his wife, Lucy, and they have three little girls. And uh, uh, Mike, we're glad you're here. Appreciate with us. Glad to be here, brother. Let me pray for you. Yes, please do. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for my friend. Thank you for his family. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would establish the work of his hands. Uh, Lord, that we, we do labor in vain without your spirit. Mm. So we ask uh, for much, much more than a biblical message, uh, much more than something clear, much more than something relevant. Uh, what we need is something that's infused with your spirit mm-hmm. and to make us new people. Uh, so Lord, do this even now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, good evening, TCPC. All right. Am I on? I bet you didn't know I was on, but the mic is off. That's how loud I am. No, I, some people would, if you were at CUF, they would say, amen. <laughs> I am loud. I've always been loud, and I've come to embrace that. I've also got a loud household, so I'm not the only one anymore. I am excited to be here with you all once again. I think it uh, was a year since the last time we were together. And like Paul, I feel like Lexington is a place that I can say I rejoice every time I think about you in my prayers because this indeed is a second home for me. And it's such a privilege and a joy to share in God's word with you all this evening. Uh, our text comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. I want to invite you to follow along as these words are read into your hearing and the words are published in your bulletins. And as you are turning there, again, grateful, Marshall, thank you so much for the hospitality and all the kind uh, things that uh, many of you have said already and the, the warmth with which we are received by you every time we visit. You'll find these words recorded Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would remove the veil off of blind eyes, remove the block out of deaf ears, turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And Lord, we pray now that you would empower me for this, your service. May my words be yours and what is not of you. Let it fall to the ground like shaft. Oh, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a dear friend of mine who is quite a bit older than me. He's old enough to be my father, in fact. And I love to hang out with older men, older, wiser men. One of the things I enjoy doing is hanging out at the YMCA in downtown Orlando with all the retirees and all the folks who are talking about retiring and all the folks who are near the end of their retirement and near the end of their days on earth. It is like a beautiful history lesson every time I hang out with these men and this friend would fall into that category, though he is not a member of the YMCA, he's a pastor in the Bahamas. And he said to me uh, one day, he said, Michael, you need to pay attention to your children. He said, because God will teach you a lot about his character through your children. And I'm still learning. I've got three girls, six, four, and two. Three precocious little girls at that. Three little mics. And so God is doing a work in me. And I'm learning, I'm learning what this thing means uh, to grow and Christ and learn about God's character through my kids and we were out running near Veterans Park the other day and pulled up to a swing, a swing set and I started pushing the two older ones, my six-year-old, my soon-to-be four-year-old and my two-year-old, or should be two next week, looked over and my wife said, Michael, Carissa wants you to come push the swing. I said, all right, I'll get over there and so I, I pushed, I walked over and pushed the swing you know, I wanted her to feel like she was just as important as the other two. And once I got them swinging, I went and sat down next to my wife on the bench, and there was a cup of chocolate milk right next to me. And then Carissa got out the swing, and she came over and walked next to the bench and picked up her chocolate milk, started drinking it. And then she hovered around my kneecaps. And then Lucy said, Michael, uh, the astute, godly, wise woman that she is, Carissa wants to wants you to pick her up. And so I said, all right. I, I, I was slightly puzzled because I thought she came to the bench for what she wanted. I picked her up, placed her in my lap. It lasted all of about a second and a half, and then she slid right down. And I said, now is that, is that that reassurance thing you were talking about again, where they, they just stop by, they check in to make sure that you love them, make sure that you're present, make sure that you know, you, you know, you're doing your fatherly, she said, exactly. They'll do that occasionally, they'll just stop by and they just want, want to know that you love them and they just want a little comfort and they're on their way. I said, okay, well, you know what? Once again, my child has taught us a lot, taught me a lot about God. Uh, you know what, we are a lot like my little daughter. 
Sometimes we need to check in and make sure that God still cares about us. Sometimes we need that reassurance, especially in our afflictions, that God is concerned for us, that God is very much present in our situation. And to that end, I want to encourage us tonight because we see indeed in our text that we have a comforting word from the Lord. In fact, our, the theme of our text is the God of all comfort. And this evening, I want to provide us with some words of comfort from the word of God uh, concerning this matter. And so I want to offer up three points. They are the God, uh, the God of comfort in affliction, the comfort of God through affliction, and then the purpose of God in affliction. Again, that's the God of comfort, the comfort of God, and then the purpose of God in affliction. If you look here at verse 3, the God of comfort, verse 3 and 4a, you will see that Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul opens up with praise. We see here as soon as he gets past the greeting that he bursts out in praise just like we did uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 when he speaks of all the riches and glorious blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul says here to us, to the Ephesians, that the God of all mercy, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our all, our devotion. That's why he opens here with a blessing to our God. We see the praise uh, of which God is worth, for which God is worthy, of which God is worthy, excuse me. We see the nature of God here, God the Father and God the Son. Paul gives us a little hit of Trinitarian uh, theology right there. We see God the Father uh, is merciful, and we see our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life for us. And Paul says that he is the Father of mercy, and he's the God of all comfort. So we find out something about the character of God just in this first verse alone. He is merciful, that is, he is compassionate. That he is a God who is in tune with the suffering of his subjects. He is a God who sees the plight of people and takes pity on them. That's what it means to be a merciful God. He's a God that loves to provide comfort for his people. That's in his character. He is not an impersonal, abstract, unknowable entity that is just floating around in oblivion. He is very much concerned. That is part of his character and knowledgeable about the inner workings, about the plight, about the troubles and the distress of his people. In fact, if we did a survey of the Old Testament, we would see that from old to new, from first to last, that the Bible characterizes God as a merciful God, as a loving God, as a kind God, as one who is caring, as one who is comforting, and one, is, and one who is very concerned about his people. Not only that, we'll notice that God is merciful to the just and the unjust. If we look in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll find that God rains down blessings on people who are in the covenant family and people who are outside of the covenant family. God has a general love for all of his creatures. Those of us who are members of the covenant community have experienced his special or saving grace, his saving love. But nonetheless, he takes pity and has compassion on all his creatures. We see this clearly in Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21 
where Abraham and Sarah have been in the promised land. They've been in Canaan for 10 years and still no child. Abraham is getting old. His wife is getting old. They're getting older and things are looking bleak. They're traveling around in the land and they don't see God's promise come to fruition. So Sarah strikes up this idea, why don't we get Hagar to conceive this child? Perhaps the promise will come through Hagar, only to discover that's not God's plan. So when Hagar and, uh, and Abram at the time interact and she conceives, Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt. And then that upsets Sarah. So Sarah treats her harshly and she leaves the house, she flees. And she's weeping by a well, and the angel of the Lord comes to her and provides comfort to her and tells her that God has seen your affliction. And God makes a promise to her, says not to worry that Ishmael will be numerous. He will have many, many peoples will come from him. He'll be a wild donkey of a man, but nonetheless, his offspring will populate the land as well. And so... In response to that, Hagar names that well, Beer Lahai Roy, which means the Lord sees, the Lord hears. So the Lord pays close attention to the affliction of this woman who would later be cast out of the house. And Paul would say that she is a slave woman. She represents those who try to earn salvation by works because Abraham and Sarah tried to bring the promise by work instead of by trusting in the Lord. So we see here that God is kind to those inside the covenant family and those who are outside of the covenant family. If we move on through the pages of redemptive history, we get to Exodus chapter 2. And Israel is under an oppressive regime. They're under a Pharaoh who rose up, that rose up who knew not Joseph. And so uh, the, their cry reaches the heavens and the Lord does something about it. He raises up Moses and tells Moses that I have seen, that I have heard, and I know the afflictions of my people. And God acts. So he's not a God that just takes notice of things and does nothing about it. He's a God that knows, he's a God that sees, he's a God that hears, he's very much involved. He's very much in tuned with what's happening down here. Sometimes we think he's so distant and far away that he's not aware of what's happening around us, but nothing could be further from the truth. God sees, he hears, and he knows, and he raises up a deliverer, and he systematically takes down all the gods of Egypt in response to the cry of his people, thereby demonstrating that he is the God of all creation, and that you mess with his people, you have to mess with him. That's the statement that God made to Pharaoh, drowned his enemies. His people celebrated in Exodus chapter 15. Miriam, they sang their song. God conquered the enemy of Pharaoh's, uh, uh, Pharaoh's enemies, and shortly thereafter, the people of God enter into complaining and grumbling and moaning. Oh, we would that you would have left us in Egypt. So you think they'd be filled with hearts of gratitude. It was short-lived. And God would be very much right to take them out for their, for their grumbling and for their tempting of God. But he's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind to them. And he continues on to Mount Sinai with his people. And they get to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up and he gets the commandments. And not, not long before he is receiving the, the word of God, the people are at the bottom of the hill engaging in idolatry. So then God tells Moses, I, I tell you what, Moses, you all go ahead into the land, but you're going without me. Moses says, how will they know that we're unique? 
How will they know that we are different? Moses has the audacity to intercede for the people. He goes before God and begs for God's favor. And then after God acquiesces, God said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be merciful to you. Moses requests to see God's glory. God said, I can't let you see my face, Moses, but I'll let all my goodness pass by you and hide you in that rock over there. God passes by him and says, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. That has always been God's character. Merciful to the thousands, but not letting the guilty go unpunished. Merciful, 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 abounding in mercy. The Old Testament is replete with passages that speak of God's merciful character. If we continue to move on throughout the pages of redemptive history, we'll, we arrive at the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40. Israel is under Assyrian captivity, about to face Babylonian captivity. And then Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. The Lord gives a comforting word to his people. And Isaiah assures them that their warfare is going to come to an end one day. Isaiah assures them that their sins are going to be forgiven one day. Isaiah assures them that a day is coming, a glorious day is coming. Though they are in exile now, where things will be, well, things will be better. And then as you move down chapter 40, Isaiah speaks of the day where the glory of the Lord will be revealed and that his, a messenger will come and make straight the paths of the Lord. And as we move to Matthew, Matthew tells us that that passage is fulfilled by John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord of glory. And we see the highest expression of God's merciful character in Jesus Christ, in that he laid down his life for helpless sinners like you and me. You see, just as he answered the cry of the Israelites and redeemed them, from, uh, redeemed them from Egyptian captivity, redeemed them from the oppressive regime of Pharaoh, the Lord rescued us from our bondage to sin. And that happened through no one other than Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, what we deserved was God's wrath. What we deserved was punishment. What we deserved was death. But God being so merciful and just, not letting the guilty go unpunished, caused mercy and justice to have a tryst at the cross. And so Paul, when he says, bless be the God of all comfort, bless be the Father of mercies, he's, he's, he's speaking as one who's encountered the mercy of God. He's speaking as one who's well aware of the cross of Jesus Christ. He's one who labeled himself the chief of sinners, excuse me, and know that and knew that God did not count his sin against him, but laid it on Christ. So that's why he can call him the father of mercy, the God of all comfort. And I want to hazard a guess. I'm not going to guess. I'm going to flat out say it. There's not one of us in this room, no matter how much money, no matter how much wealth, no matter how much education, no matter how much social standing, no matter how much you name it, prestige, there's not one of us in here who haven't gone through certain seasons or times or afflictions in our life where we have asked the question, God, do you care about me? 
God, are you concerned about the trouble that I'm facing right now? Reason being, because life has a way of bringing troubles to us for which myriad temporal blessings sweet they may be cannot provide the comfort for which we so long. Let me say it like this. There are some things in life that your wealth, that your education, that all the acclaim you have, there are some things in life that just won't comfort you when you're faced with certain trouble. The only one who can comfort you is the God of all comfort. The only comfort, the only way you can experience that comfort for which, for which we so long, uh, for which we, we long is by casting ourself on the God of all comfort, casting ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ, our merciful Savior, by casting ourselves on the burden bearer, as Psalm 55 says, and, and being sustained by this great burden bearer. Material blessings won't do it. Escaping won't do it. Won't do it. Numbing yourself won't provide the comfort that you long for. That comfort can only come from God Almighty. And the way you do that is by recounting the wonderful deeds that the Lord has already done in your life. By pausing and reflecting on, from, uh, by pausing and reflecting on all the ways that God has been good to you up to this very point right now. And thinking back to your past afflictions, the psalmist says in Psalm 78 to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord and to tell the coming generations. My grandfather, who will be 93 years old in December, is great at doing this. Amidst his afflictions right now, he always tells me, Michael, let me tell you about all the things from which God delivered me in the past. His confidence, his hope is rooted on God's past faithfulness. That's what causes him to look faithfully at God right now. And so, brothers and sisters, if we stopped and thought about God's goodness to us up to this point right now, it would give us reason to cast ourselves on the God of all comfort amidst our affliction because he is ready to comfort us. He is ready to receive us. Paul tells us a little bit more. He tells us that God provides comfort through the affliction of others. We look at the second point. We see the comfort of God through affliction, verses 4 through 6. We look at 4b. It says, so that... Uh, uh, let me jump back up to 4a, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. You know, I love the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He's in control of all things. He's got the entire universe in his hand. And sometimes we think, and we love this in our tradition, we love to talk about the sovereignty of God, but sometimes we think that God's sovereignty is just this abstract notion that he's just floating around here in another realm and that his sovereignty doesn't reach the very minutia of our everyday lives, the very ordinary, mundane, mundane and seemingly unimportant things of our lives. Uh, in fact, I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about God's providence. It says that it is his most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures 
and all their actions. And the sovereignty of God reaches right down to the very minute that we take a breath, the very moment that we take a breath. He's in control of all the affairs of our life, even the suffering that we face. Here in the Western church, we have a tendency to think that suffering is always, uh, not always, but we have a tendency to think via pop Christian culture that our suffering is a result of sin. Suffering is not always a result of sin. Hardship is not always a result of sin. We live in a broken and a fallen world, so we can expect that there will be hardships in our life. But too often we see on the television, too often we see on the book shelves that, that, that uh, the, the, the way to know that you are blessed is by how much prosperity you have. And I'm not saying that prosperity is bad. I want to prosper like anyone else. But what I want to do is confront the lie that just because you're facing suffering in your life uh, constitutes a lack of faith or that you are somehow far away from God. To be sure, there are times in our life where we will suffer because of our sin. God does chastise us as a father who loves his children would. So God will allow our sin to allow us to bear the consequences of our sin. But most often, God doesn't judge us according to our sin. In fact, if he did judge us according to our sin, none of us would be in this room. Is that an amen? amen. All right, I just want to make sure. Okay. Hey, uh, don't make me think I'm the only one up here. Okay. And so what I want to submit to you all, beloved, is that there's a movement uh, in these prosperity gospel circles that tells you if you put this much money in the trade, you can expect this from God. That's not true. Okay, if you put this much money in the trade, you can expect that you will be healthy. You can expect that you will pass your test. You, can, you fill in the blank. If you study, you might pass your test. <laughs> don't, it, don't not do the readings and then tithe and think, you know, God's going to, I'm going to pass this test because I gave the Lord, I made an offering to the Lord. He'll take your offering, but you might fail the test. <laughs> Plain and simple. And too often we see on the television this quid pro quo type of theology that if you just give God this, you'll get that. That's not true. Oftentimes, the closer you get to God, the more suffering you can expect. We have a real enemy that's after us. There are real dark forces that are after us. When you bear the name of Christ, you can expect, hear me loudly, when you bear the name of Christ, you can expect that you will have affliction in your life. Too often in the American church, we think that the call to follow Jesus is the call to the road of mitigated suffering. That is not true. It's not true. So stop promising people that there ain't going to be no suffering when you follow Jesus, that everything is going to be better. That's not true. Thank you for allowing me to take liberty with the English language. Jesus tells us that the Christian life involves suffering simply because he is the one who set the paradigm for our life, for our journey. We see this in Jesus Christ clearly. If we look through the Gospels, we see that is suffering before glory. We see that there's a cross before resurrection. Peter looks at Jesus, not my Savior. Get behind me, Satan. When we look at the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Some people cannot take the fact that the Messiah was going to suffer. 
That was troubling for some people, some of the, some of the Jews, because they were looking for a Messiah that was going to restore the kingdom and make them great again. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to bring back the golden age of Israel. They were looking for a Messiah to mitigate suffering. And here comes Jesus, this stranger from Galilee, that says, no, I'm going to suffer before I enter into glory. And it unsettled people. Jesus says to us, if the world hated me, the world will hate you. Jesus tells us, if any man would follow after me, he must pick up his cross and deny himself. Beloved, those are the words of the Savior. We all have a cross or crosses to bear. Following Christ comes at a cost. There will be suffering. There will be troubles in this life. People will dislike you. People will think you are narrow-minded. People will think you are bigoted. People will call you all kinds of names. You'll get ridiculed. You'll be labeled uneducated. You'll be labeled backwards and not with time. They'll tell you that your philosophy of life is antiquated. People will tell you that. You can expect those things when you follow Jesus. But Jesus says you're blessed when they happen. Jesus tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve as a ransom for many. And how is it that Jesus Christ served us except that he laid down his life and died the death that you and I deserve? That's how he ransoms us. His blood is shed for ours. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Somebody suffered so that we would be saved. Somebody died so that we would have life. Someone was forsaken so that we would be brought in. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling Psalm 22. That's what our Savior did. Our Savior experienced suffering for us, that's the paradigm he set. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 in the great hymn that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming man, assumed a human nature, 100% man, 100% God, left his place in eternity, and he died. He also died a shameful death, a shameful, humiliating, painful death that's reserved for criminals. An innocent man was brought up, was brought up on charges was brought up on trumped up charges. That's what our Savior did for us. That's the pattern that he set. Suffering before glory. But in verse 6, Paul tells us that there's a purpose behind it. If we are afflicted, it is for the comfort of others. Paul tells the Corinthians, listen, if I have faced hardship, it's for your spiritual welfare. If I have faced trouble, it is for your spiritual welfare to see Christ, to see Christ uh, made known in you. That's Paul's testimony. Paul did not mind suffering for the sake of the kingdom's cause. Paul did not mind suffering for the advancement of the gospel. He made it clear to us that it was hard, that it was tough, but he understood well that when he followed Christ, that his mission in spreading the gospel entailed a great deal of suffering for the sake, and he rejoiced to suffer for the name of his Lord and Savior. Some of you may be able to 
have that test. Some of you might have that testimony this afternoon. And if we look back in the Old Testament, we see that we see that image no more clearly than in the story of Joseph, an innocent man whose brothers were jealous of him, one of Jacob's uh, sons that he favored because he had him in old age. His brothers got jealous, wanted to kill him. One said, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so they decided to sell Joseph into slavery. And then Joseph, on his journey, end up, ends up interpreting the dreams of two individuals and tells one, listen, when you get a chance to be restored, please remember me. And Joseph is forgotten. So he's betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's forgotten down in some prison cell. And then he has another opportunity. Someone finds out that he can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh brings him in and says, I want you to interpret this dream that I've had. And what Joseph sees is that a day is coming where the land will be under a severe famine. And so God uses Joseph to prepare Pharaoh's kingdom for this famine that's going to come. Well, that famine extends all the way to the Jacobian camp. So all the way back to Jacob's, uh, all the way back to Joseph's family, they were impacted by the famine. And so they have to sojourn down to Egypt to find food. And when they get to Egypt, who do they find in command? Unbeknownst to them, their very brother that they sold into slavery. And Joseph's emotions throughout Genesis 37 through 50 are made clear to them. And eventually he reveals his identity and once we arrive at the end of the story, Joseph's brothers are fearful that, they're going to, that he's going to avenge their sin against him. Joseph says to them, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Listen closely. As it is, today the saving of lives is being brought about. That man went through all of that affliction all of that trouble, all of that suffering, only to be used by God to save the very men that sold him into slavery. That's how sovereign God is over all the affairs of our life. You may not even know it right now, but the affliction, you might have experienced some affliction in your life. And some of you might be able to say, Mike, I know exactly what you're talking about. God used me to encourage people in their suffering. And, and, and God used me, used my story to bring people to faith. Some of you are probably coming in here with all kinds of affliction and wondering what in the world is God going to do with it. You may be here with sexual brokenness. You may come from messy families. You may, come, you may, be, uh, you may be the victims of injustice. There may be all sorts of trials that you've faced in your life. Maybe some of you are facing it this very moment as I speak, and you are wondering, God, do you care? And what are you going to do with it? Is there a purpose for the trouble that you are facing? And I tell you a categorical, yes, there is a purpose. When I was going through church planter assessment, it was amidst one of the most difficult seasons in our life, in Lucy and I's life. We had all sorts of things going on with extended family and just a tough season in life. And one of the counselors, this, the dear wife of a PCA pastor in North Carolina, looked me in the eyes and said, listen, Michael, God is in the limbo. God is here in the wilderness, and God does not waste time with your experiences. 
You may not understand right now why this pain is here or what God will do with it. But rest assured that God does not waste time with any of your troubles. And I want to comfort you this afternoon, TCPC, and tell you that right now, wherever you are amidst your affliction, God has a design for it. God is sovereign over all of the affairs of our life. And God loves and he desires to use and to redeem our stories for the welfare of other people. And if we look here at the third thing, Paul tells us that <clears throat> somewhat related to the second point, that there's a purpose of God in the affliction. So we see that God uses our affliction to the welfare of others, but God has a personal purpose for us, for us personally, if you will. If we look at verse 8, Paul tells us, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the death sentence. I, can, I, I don't know how to depict more clearly than that, that Paul was going through some stuff. Paul was... And you thought you had a bad day. Paul had a lot of stuff going on in his life. Paul had a lot of suffering and trouble with which he was faced on his missionary journeys. If, you'd, if you were to take a cursory look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul enumerates several of his hardships, uh, which we don't have time to unpack at this uh, moment. But Paul was beaten multiple times, beaten to the point of death. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, he may have been beaten to death. Okay, Paul was beaten severely multiple times. He was maligned. He was lied on. He was slandered by the so-called super apostles. He was mistreated. People rebelled against him. He had all kinds of things going on in his life, in, his life, in addition to worrying about uh, seeing Christ developed in all the churches that he started. Paul had some trouble that he had to undergo. He was weighed down. That's what he means there literally when he was burdened. He was weighed down. Imagine someone at the gym when they put too much weight on their back. We know this when we go to the gym and you feel good and instead of getting a helping hand, instead of getting a spot, you keep adding weights on there and then you go down and you can't come back up. And you've got to get a spot. I've been there a time or two. Maybe some of you are laughing because you've been there. Maybe right now, spiritually speaking, you are still there. Maybe you feel so weighed down right now that you, you feel that you've received the sentence of death. When Paul says that he despaired, it meant that he was out of solutions. That's what he means by despair. He said, I don't know what else I will do. I've, I've come to the end of my rope. I've come to the end. I've exhausted every possible scenario. Paul's testimony was in, in, in simple, sometimes living just takes the life out of you. That's what he was experiencing when he says that we were burdened. Burdened. That we were in such great despair that we despaired life as we thought we received the sentence of death. I was out running one afternoon when I visited uh, my home back in Miami. And 
It was on a major street, and this, this lady was sitting at the bus stop, and she just cried out, God, I can't do it anymore. And she had a baby in her hand, and the baby was screaming, and she was crying. It was a tough situation. And I just stopped all sweaty, and I said, you're right. You can't do it by yourself. You cannot do it alone. You need to depend on God because only he can carry you through this situation. It turned out to be a girl that attended elementary school with me. Yeah, I recognized as I got closer. And some of you tonight may be at a point where the lid is about to blow off. Some of you may be here, may, may, may be in such great despair, great depression, that you want to cry out and scream like that woman did. Whether it's a job loss, whether it's struggle in your marriage, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you're thinking, I'm failing, and, you, and you're thinking that, that your kids aren't going to turn out, is anything good, whatever the case may be, and you yourself feel like a failure. Maybe you're despairing life to that degree. Well, Paul tells us that God does this. Why? But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God will bring us into situations. God will bring us into troubling afflictions just so that we will depend on him. He has a way of doing that. All of you young, strapping, beautiful, industrious, upwardly mobile people who are ready to grab the world by the coattail, self-reliant and full of industry. Sometimes we take those secular philosophies and superimpose them over our thoughts about our salvation. And we think that we, in fact, are so good that we saved ourselves. And sometimes God will take us right down the road of affliction just because he loves us enough to remind us that you did not save yourself and you can't save yourself. And this is unsustainable. You have to trust in me. Only I can uphold you. God doesn't always bring affliction our way because of something that we have done wrong. He does it oftentimes because he cares about us, because he wants to reprove our character. Peter tells us we ought not be surprised when we're faced with fiery trials because they come to purify us. If you think back to Genesis uh, chapter 12 through 25, the Lord called, Moses, uh, called Abraham into relationship with him, with himself at the age of 75, and it took 24 years. 25 years for the child to come at the 24th year, the Lord said to Abraham, you're going to have a child next year. And Abraham laughed and said, oh, that Ishmael might receive the blessing. Sarah laughed and said, will Abraham as old as he is, and me, will I give uh, birth to a child for Abraham? And she laughed at God. God showed up the next year, and she gave birth to a child at the age of 90 and named him Isaac, which means he laughs. God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> Turned her faithless laughing into faithful laughing. But it was an impossible situation. God does that. He brings us to the end of ourselves. He brings us to the end of our solutions. He brings us to that point of confusion. He brings us to that point of desolation where we say, God, I give up. Only you can do this. In seminary, a friend told me, Michael, the Lord is in the business of removing the kickstands. 
so that we will fall right into his lap. He doesn't remove the kickstand so we'll fall on our face. God is not trying to trip us. He's not a cosmic clown that wants to injure us. He wants us to fall right into his loving and trusting arms. And that's why we're faced with afflictions oftentimes. As we close this evening, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Paul says that the same God, that he believes and he hopes in the same God that raised Jesus from the dead. That same God is the one who can bring that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us and through us, even in the midst of our suffering, that same power is what brings life to us in our dark situations. And sometimes God does not remove the affliction. Sometimes he will change our thoughts about the present situation. And that's a way that God delivers us as well. He doesn't always deliver us in the way that we anticipate. He delivers us according to his design and what he knows is best for us. But we do have this assurance right here. Paul tells us that one day that we will be finally delivered. That all of the suffering you face right now, all of the affliction that you face right now, all of the tears, all of the heartache, all of the trouble that you have faced in this life and will face if you live long enough will give way and will seize when Jesus ushers in his eternal and consummate kingdom. For then we will raise from the grave and we'll inherit bodies that are imperishable. We will have uninterrupted fellowship with our Lord. No sin will be present, no pain, no suffering. He's bottled up every tear. He's wiped every tear away from our eyes. That's how the story ends. And some mysterious way, the same Jesus that is going to return and usher in that kingdom is at work in our hearts right now. And he understands all of our afflictions for he tells us in Hebrews chapter four that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. But he's been tempted in every respect as we have yet without sin. Jesus mysteriously knows every single pain that we undergo, past, present, and future. And he is a man that is acquainted with grief. He is a man that is acquainted with sorrow. He is a savior who was afflicted that we might be healed. So beloved, this evening, cast yourselves on the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies, and be comforted and encouraged this evening. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would seal this word to our hearts so that we would serve you with joyful obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.